This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to another edition of New Books in Systems and Cybernetics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom Scholt, from the University of British Columbia. It would be difficult to argue against Stafford Beer's Project Cybersyn as the most bold and audacious chapter in the history of cybernetics. In the early 70s, at the invitation of leftist President Salvador Allende, the godfather of management cybernetics, as Norbert Wiener christened Beer, attempted nothing less than the development and implementation of a cybernetic governance system for Chile's nationalized economy. For decades, we have relied solely on the writings of Beer and his associates for accounts of this amazing techno-political adventure. But thanks to Eden Medina's Cybernetic Revolutionaries, Technology and Politics in Allende's Chile from the MIT Press, originally published in 2011 and out in softcover in 2014, We now have a deeply researched scholarly investigation of this extraordinary historical moment in which Beer's cybernetic viable system model was positioned as a tool to enable radical socialist transformation while remaining within Chile's constitutional democratic framework. Medina deftly guides us through this astonishing odyssey as the utopian visionary Beer and his brilliant and inspired team of local collaborators facing an invisible U.S.-led economic and technological blockade, craft a real-time communications network stretching the entire length of Chile out of three mainframe computers and a warehouse full of unused telex machines, and which proves its mettle in response to a wildly disruptive U.S.-funded national truck driver strike. Along the way, we meet a colorful cast of characters, including doctor-turned-Marxist lightning rod Salvador Allende, wily young political operator and future Silicon Valley innovator, Fernando Flores, and of course, the wildly charismatic business guru turned leftist new age quasi-mystic Stafford Beer, all wrestling with the struggle to keep their emancipatory egalitarian project of distributed decision-making and control from tipping over into a centralized technocracy as the entire Chilean socialist project teeters towards its brutal and tragic ending. Seamlessly blending compelling storytelling and astute technological, political, and cultural analysis, Medina's book stands as a penetrating look at an under-theorized political experiment and a detailed summary of its still hotly debated legacy. And so, without further ado, let's turn to my conversation with author Eden Medina. Eden Medina, welcome to New Books in Systems and Cybernetics. I'm so pleased that you were able to take the time to join us. Thank you very much. It is a pleasure to be here. So uh, we'll start off with the traditional uh, question for the channel and for the New Books Network is if you can just tell us a little bit about yourself, your academic background, anything about your biography that uh, you think would be good for listeners to know and sort of take us along your 
your trajectory, intellectual and academic trajectory, to eventually your engagement with cybernetics, at least for this particular book project, and anything else you think would be good for our, our listeners to know? Sure. Um, so while I teach now, I'm, I'm a professor of informatics and computing at Indiana University Bloomington. Um, and within, uh, within the school, I'm a historian of technology. So I'm a historian of technology today. But I started as an electrical engineer. And when I was completing my undergraduate studies in electrical engineering, I began to, f- to feel that what interested me about technology was not the technology in and of itself, but rather the social and political dimensions of technology. And so for me, that took me over to the women's studies department on campus, and I, I earned a, a certificate in women's studies in addition to uh, electrical engineering. And when I graduated and started working as an electrical engineer, um, I still had that that feeling that what really interested me about technology uh, were the dimensions that had to do with society and politics and power. Uh, And so I decided to apply to grad school. I applied to grad school at MIT uh, in their program in science, technology, and society. And when I was accepted, I went there to complete a PhD. And the way that this program works is it'll train students in areas such as history or anthropology of science and technology. So I didn't know that I wanted to be a historian until I I started doing my my grad studies. And I realized that history was a really compelling methodology for being able to look over the shoulders of people who were building technological systems and see all the nitty gritty details of how they were building uh, the different systems that they were involved with. And I thought that that was fascinating. Um, Another part of the story is that I was born in South America. I was born in Colombia. And when I started to learn about the history of technology and the history of computing in particular, uh, it was very clear that South American history, Latin American history was not part of that narrative. And to me, that seemed ridiculous. That just seemed ludicrous. So I started doing some digging uh, in the MIT libraries, uh, looking for uh, stories of Latin American computing, uh, Latin American information technology. Uh, And in one book, I found a footnote and a couple paragraphs about a system called Project Cybersyn. And it sounded fascinating. It was it was a attempt to use computers to bring about socialist change. It involved worker participation um, and it involved the science of cybernetics and a a cybernetician known as Stafford Beer, uh, who in those days uh, wasn't as well known as a number of other luminaries uh, in the cybernetics community. Now, cybernetic history is broad. Cybernetic history spans multiple countries, um, but MIT is one of the centers of, of, of cybernetic history. And so I think not only the Latin America part of that story, but also the fact that it was cybernetics and I was at MIT and I had been learning about cybernetics, just all of it came together um, and it felt like a good story. It felt like there might be something there. Uh, and so I started doing some digging, and <laughs> over the next 10 years, it evolved into the book Cybernetic Revolutionaries. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you went looking for a story, and boy, did you find a doozy, right? And it's 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 interesting just to think that this is a couple paragraphs and a footnote when it is such an astonishing tale 
Um, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. yeah. I remember when I first came across it in another book too, that gave it more attention. I, I honestly couldn't believe this was real. I honestly couldn't believe that this had actually happened and that we, we didn't, that so many people didn't know about it because it really is remarkable. And you've done, you've done uh, many communities, academic and otherwise a great service by giving us this, this detailed account of it. Cause we've had Stafford beer's own account, of course, for many years, but to give us this, um, you know, disinterested third party uh, look at it and the exhaustive research you've done is uh, this is a book that that needed to be written and you've done a marvelous job. So congratulations on that. So, oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, it is a story that that crosses a number of academic disciplines. And I agree with you. It just it was one of those stories where you think as a historian of computing, right? Why hadn't I why hadn't I heard that? Typical of cybernetics position still on the margins for many even though it's its influences everywhere. But that's you know, a, a axe I've been grinding for a long time, <laughs> hence this podcast. But um, so let's start a bit with our main character. And I think, you know, this, this is a story that demands to be a movie, uh, actually. And I've, I've, I've already cast Anthony Hopkins uh, in the lead role. But uh, yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about this larger than life protagonist uh, that we have, at least from the cybernetics angle or other huge players, of course, Salvador Allende uh, um, being... Uh, probably the most important. Uh, but let's start a bit with Stafford Beer. Just a little thumbnail sketch of what uh, listeners need to know about Stafford Beer. Sure. Uh, so Stafford Beer, or Anthony Stafford Beer, if we're talking about his his full name, but he went by Stafford Beer, uh, was British. Uh, he, he was very tall. He had a beard for much of his life. Uh, extremely articulate uh, and prolific in his writings. Uh, if you go through his writings, so you know his many of his papers are archived in Liverpool, so you can you can see a, a lot of them. And if you go through his the documents that are stored there, you're going to be struck by his beautiful penmanship. Um, and he also ha- would accompany his writings uh, with drawings. So there are a lot of drawings uh, within his work, which separated him from, say, other people in the cybernetics community who might have had more mathematics uh, in their work. He was more drawn to prose and, and perhaps to, to illustrations. He was a poet and a painter in addition to being a cybernetician. So he published multiple books on cybernetics, but he also published a book of poetry. His paintings were exhibited in a cathedral in Liverpool later in his life. Um, But the core of his research is on cybernetics, um, and in particular, a strain of cybernetic thought that is known as management cybernetics. Uh, In particular, he is known as the father of management cybernetics. Uh, As Beer tells it, this is a nickname that the MIT mathematician Norbert Wiener gave to him. Um, And so Stafford Beer, just to kind of back up and and say a little bit more about him, he entered college at, at 16. He entered University College London, uh, but then he left soon after to go and do his military service. But when he got out of the military, he encountered Norbert Wiener's book, Cybernetics, uh, which was published in 1948 and became this crossover hit. I mean, if you've, if you've read the Cybernetics, it's not an easy book, right? So it could be it could be a little surprising that it was uh, the crossover hit that it was, um, but it did reach a broad audience. Uh, among the members of that audience was Stafford Beer, and the ideas in that book just blew him away. And he thought, I want to apply these ideas uh, to industry. I want to apply these ideas to the management of a firm. Um, and so he started to do that. He started to do that first in the steel industry uh, and for a consulting firm known as Sigma. 
And then he moved to the publishing sector and worked for a large publishing company uh, for a number of years. Um, and along the way, he, he was publishing works that were getting his management cybernetics out into the world. Uh, in 1966, he won one of the top awards for operations research in, in the English language, the Frederick Lanchester Prize for his book, Decision and Control. Um, he published in prestigious venues, including the top scientific journal, Nature. Um, and what's striking about all of this is that he did all of this without ever having finished his university studies um, because he left university early. And so one of the interesting things that I find is that later on, he was hired as faculty at the Manchester Business School, and they had to give him a master's degree um, so that he would have the, the qualifications to teach on their faculty <laughs> um, because he, he didn't even have his undergraduate degree. Um, there are several interesting things about Stafford Beer's work. Um, he published 10 books on cybernetics, so actually there, there are a lot of interesting things about his work. Um, but one of the things that I think that is key, uh, first, he was very interested in the use of information for action. So information for information's sake, data for data's sake, that didn't interest him. He wanted to find ways to take information and by extension, our new information processing technologies such as computers um, to drive action, right? To do things in the world. Um, he also was interested in control, but not control in the way that we might typically think about control. So if I were to say control, um, most people might think of domination, right? They might think of a top-down authoritarian sort of a relationship. But for Beer, control was something very different. He was interested in what he called exceedingly complex systems, right? So systems that were just too complicated to describe in detail. And for Beer, it was pretty much impossible to control an exceedingly complex system, right? Unless you had a controller that had the same degree of complexity and could respond to all the possible states of that system, right? And so for him, control was not about top-down domination. Control was about adaptation, right? Control was about the coupling of two highly complex systems to each other and being able to adapt to one another so that they would find that balance point, that homeostasis. And he thought that perhaps systems could be designed in ways so that that homeo homeostatic point, that point in the middle, that equilibrium point would be the desired state of the system. And so that that was the idea of control, that kind of adaptive coupling homeostasis, not trying to dominate another. And I think that different approach to control is something that really made Beer's work confusing uh, to people who, who didn't really know the entire context of his work and the vocabulary that he was using. Um, another thing that's interesting about Stafford Beer's work, and this applies directly to the Chile system, is that he wanted to try to find this balance between, within a system between freedom of the individual component parts and the stability of the entire organism. And in fact, by 1973, he was describing that kind of balance as effective freedom, right? We can find a point, um, even calculate that point that will maximize the freedom of the parts without throwing the larger system into disarray while maintaining the viability of that larger system. Um, so yeah, I could go on, but there are certain distinguishing factors about your cybernetics that are important to the, to the larger Chile story.
Yeah, no, that's fantastic. What a fabulous introduction to to beer and his thought. Is this the moment to say just a couple of words about the viable system model? I mean, obviously, we could do a whole episode on that, but just because that's what eventually he's going to, in a sense, graft the Chilean economy onto. Should we just say a couple of words about about the VSM as the kind of core of his work? Sure. Um, so the viable system model or the VSM is one of the central concepts in Stafford Beer's work. Um, he dedicated three books to the topic of the, the viable system model. So clearly there is a lot to be said. Um, and I think it is relevant to note that Beer is developing the viable system model. In fact, uh, the book that he first presents it uh, in, uh, which is Brain of the Firm, comes out while he is doing the Chile work. Um, so he's testing it, he's developing it um, kind of around the same moment that he's going to, to Santiago to, to work on Project Cybersyn. So the viable system model is complicated to explain, but I can, I can explain some of its key features. So first of all, this is a model that Beer believed existed in all systems that could survive, right? These are systems that maintain their viability. And he believed that the same set of relationships existed in all viable systems and also could be nested one inside the other of different viable systems, right? So one example that, that we could think of is that the state, the factory, and the worker right? They all could be mapped onto a viable system model, whether it's the governance of the state or the biology of the worker, right? They would have a similar set of relationships, which really is very cybernetic, right? Because we're thinking about these, the ability to take understandings of the ways that electrical systems, organizational systems, biological systems, right? To find that commonality in the way that they work. Um, and so the viable system model has that, that uh, quality. The other important thing about the viable system model is that it represented a form of decentralized control. And this is very important. So Beer described the viable system model as having five levels. Um, and many people would read them as five hierarchical levels, but Beer would say, no, that's not the case, um, you know, because there's a lot of the top level is connected to the bottom level. There's lateral communication. So it's not a top down kind of system. Um, but I think that the key part here is that the viable system model, level one, we might equate to the individual organs of the body. So we could think of it as the liver, the kidneys, the lungs. And on a day-to-day -day basis, you don't think about what your organs are doing, right? They just, they just do their thing. They do what they're going to do, right? We can't be concerned consciously about what our kidneys are doing or to remember to breathe. But Beer said that under certain moments, right, there are certain moments of crisis or stress where the highest level of the system, right, the system five, which he equated to the cerebral cortex, might need to intervene in the activities of that lower level so that the entire system could survive. So we might think of, you know, day to day, you don't think, you know, about how you breathe, your lungs operate on their own independently. But if you're swimming, right? If you're worried about you could drown, your brain may need to intervene from above and control your rate of respiration, right? So it's an exceptional moment, but it is necessary for your overall survival. And so the viable system struck that kind of balance as well between preserving autonomy, except in moments of extreme crisis, in which case you would have intervention from above to assist the survival of the whole. 
Right. Terrific. That's a fabulous uh, overview of, of the VSM. Thank you. Um, so then we've got Chile in the early 70s, and we've got the popular unity government of Salvador Allende. And uh, so if you could just give us, again, just a, a snapshot of the situation, political situation in, in Chile as, uh, as Allende has come to power, and uh, maybe a little bit about him. And also introducing, of course, the key person who brings these two sort of towering figures of Allende and Beer together, and a towering figure in his own right, of course, Fernando Flores. So can you just give us a little description of what's going on in Chile and how the invitation ends up uh, reaching Stafford Beer? Sure. Um, so 1970, which is the year that, that Allende is, is elected president, um, is a year that Chile is vaulted onto the world stage for trying to pioneer a political experiment, um, which many people believed would be a political third way. We're in the middle of the Cold War. We have the United States on one side. We have the Soviet Union on the other side. Um, and in the middle, we have countries like Chile uh, that say we can bring about socialist transformation, socialist revolution, um, but peacefully without bloodshed, um, and within the confines of the existing constitution. Um, Salvador Allende was a medical doctor, and while he was completing his medical studies, uh, he became aware of the afflictions of the poor, and so that was something that that motivated him uh, professionally and in his politics. Uh, he fought for his cousin, Marmaduke Grove, uh, who was Chile's first socialist president in 1932, um, but for only a, a short-lived 12 days. Um, and Marmaduke Grove wasn't, wasn't democratically elected like Allende, but it's still interesting to note the connection. Um, when Allende won the presidential election uh, in 1970, this was actually the fourth time that he had run for the president. He had run uh, three prior times. Um, and he had won as the candidate of a leftist coalition that was known as Popular Unity, or Unidad Popular in Spanish. Um, it's worth noting that he had won with a very thin uh, margin of the vote. So it was a three-way race. Uh, he won with only a 1.3% margin uh, of the vote. So he was victorious but it, he did not have the overwhelming support of the majority of the Chilean people, which is important to note that he was coming into power in a fractured context. So outwardly, his dream was bringing about peaceful socialist transformation. He was going to do so within the framework of the Chilean constitution. Uh, one of the ways he described it is that Chilean socialism would take place with empanadas and red wine which is a very nice turn of phrase, um, which gives the impression that it would be without blood. It would be something that would even be enjoyable. It would be distinctively Chilean. Um, but on the flip side, Allende's victory um, terrifies the White House. It terrifies the Nixon White House. Um, and so as soon as the White House learns that Allende has successfully won the presidency in Chile, um, there are memos that show there are concerns of Latin America being uh, put into a red sandwich with Chile on one side and Cuba on the other. Um, there are instructions to make the economy scream. The U.S. starts an invisible economic blockade of Chile. Um, and we now know that the CIA would spend at least $8 million uh, trying to destabilize the Allende government. And we're still continuing to learn um, the extent of U.S. intervention in Chile. 
Um, so in a nutshell, that's what's going on uh, from 1970 to 1973 when there's a military coup um, that brings the Allende government to an early end. Now, the story that I laid out of, of earlier Stafford Beer and now uh, Salvador Allende, um, those two stories are brought together by the story of a third person who you've already alluded to, um, who is Fernando Flores. Um, Fernando Flores is a name that might be familiar to those listeners um, who are in fields such as human-computer interaction, um, or perhaps people who might have encountered uh, uh, his other work in the area of speech act theory or his consulting work. Um, but Fernando Flores uh, started off as an engineer, an engineering student at the Catholic University in Chile. Um, he was born in a small town outside of Santiago to a railroad engineer. His father was a railroad engineer and his mother owned a small lumber company. Um, from 1968 to 1970, he was the academic director of the engineering school at the Catholic University. And in 1969, uh, Flores is one of a small group of, of Chileans who decide to break uh, from the Christian Democratic Party, which is a centrist party in Chile, and form a party known as the Mapu. And the Mapu would join the popular unity, the Unidad Popular, and would contribute to Allende's victory. Uh, his presidential victory. And so as Flores's trajectory goes, after Allende comes to power, um, Flores is appointed to be the director of the State Development Corporation. The State Development Corporation is a large government agency that is put in charge of overseeing the nationalization effort, um, an effort to bring the most important industries in the country under state control. And Flores is appointed to be general technical manager, general technical director of the State Development Corporation. And so Flores looks at this tremendous management problem that the government now has, that it doesn't have experience running all of these companies. Um, and he says, how do we do this? How do we actually think about managing all of these companies in a way that um, will allow them to increase production and will help the Chilean economy flourish? And while he was a student, he had worked for one of Beer's consulting companies. He had worked for a company known as Sigma. And through that, he had been exposed to Beer's writing on management cybernetics. And he liked the philosophical core of it, that it wasn't just mathematical techniques, that there was a way of thinking about organization that he found quite compelling. And so he decided to use the bit of power that he had as general technical manager uh, to reach out to Stafford Beer and see if Beer would want to come to Chile to apply his insights to managing the economy. And that's how our three players get on the board, so to speak. We have Allende, and then we have Flores, and now Beer is arriving in Santiago in November of 1971. Fabulous. And some of this is already becoming self-evident through the, the marvelous answers you've given already to to. to I think listeners will probably be already putting this together, but can you just say a couple more words about what makes in the minds of these three individuals, Beers Management Cybernetics and the goals of this particular Chilean third way brand of socialism compatible? Yeah. So part of the argument that I make in the book is that management cybernetics and Chilean socialism are very different strains of thought, right? They're, they don't naturally fit together. But what brings them together is the fact that they're exploring similar terrain, 
right? Albeit Chilean socialism is exploring this terrain in the domain of politics and management cybernetics is exploring that domain uh, in the area of science, right? But they're both interested in how do you change the organization of a system so that it preserves individual autonomy, but at the same time so that that system maintains its integrity and perhaps naturally drifts to a new point of homeostasis, right? So I'm using the cybernetic language to describe that phenomena, but we could also think of it in political terms, right? How do you bring about change in a political system so that you don't have bloodshed, so that you don't have armed conflict and revolution, but so that you can do things like change uh, property ownership, uh, change the distribution of wealth, right? Change these very fundamental things about a socioeconomic set of relationships, um, and do so in a way that respects the existing frame of law, right? And do so in a way that continues to respect civil liberties. So even though management cybernetics and Chilean socialism are coming from very different areas of thought, right? They have very different trajectories. What brings them together is that they're interested in this similar intellectual terrain. And that's what brings Flores and Beer together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating, and, you, and you've laid it out so so wonderfully in the book about uh, this idea that you know Allende's fierce commitment to trying to do some pretty radical stuff, particularly, and it was still too radical for many, right? That the rate at which uh, industries were being nationalized, but to do all that within the framework of of the democratic constitution of the country, uh, and that that's what would set it apart from the Soviets or the Cubans, and of course the great tragedy that. The White House decided to treat it as exactly the same kind of um, top-down thing to be feared. Yeah. So here comes the big fat question of all, (laughs) as if these others haven't been fat enough. But uh, can you give us an overview? I mean, first there was Cyber Stride that then turned into Cyber Sin. And there's, of course, the different components from the the Checo, uh, the simulator to, you know, there's so many components. But the overall shape of this of this system that, that we call uh, CyberSyn and um, maybe a little bit about the incredible technological um, barriers that they were facing. Um, not a lot of computers in Chile to begin with, and then this invisible blockade that makes it even harder, but then the, the incredible feats of uh, engineering, um, you know, making do with what they've got that make the, the, the program happen. So just some, some broad brush strokes on how this whole thing is supposed to work. Right. So, so beer arrived in Chile in the first time for the first time in November of 1971. Um, and in consultation with a small group of, of Chileans who are mostly engineers, they come up with an idea for a system that at the time they call Project Cyberstride. Um, the name would shift to Project Cybersyn in March of, of 1972. Um, but in essence, Project Cyberstride would have um, core component parts. It would have uh, some customized software uh, that was written uh, to uh, take in data from the different factories in the, in the national sector of the economy, in the public sector of the economy, and predict future performance. Um, it would also have a telecommunications backbone um, that was based off of telex machines and would allow uh, the data to be sent from the factories to the uh, central command room in, in the government. Um, It would have an operations room that Beer viewed as a decision-making space. 
Um, and then finally, it would have an economic simulator where policymakers could play with different aspects of the Chilean economy and use what they saw happening um, to guide their decisions. Uh, and the decision, the, the economic simulator wasn't intended to be a precise representation of the economy, but rather, as I said, kind of a means to, to play with different inputs and outputs and, and see the relationship among different components of the system. So those are the four component parts of what would become uh, CyberSyn. Um, in a nutshell, this is how the system worked, right? And, and if you remember what I said about the viable system model, you should be able to see a connection between the two, right? So factories that had been nationalized would send their data uh, via the Telex network. It would be sent to the central computing center in Chile, where it would be processed uh, by a mainframe computer. The software would look and say, huh, it looks like raw materials are about the same level. It looks like energy is about the same level. It looks like workers are still coming to work. Um, and if that were the case, the system would just let the factory just keep going. It would keep on doing what it's doing. However, if the fact or if the computer detected that there was some sort of anomaly, right, something that needed attention, it would generate a warning signal that the people in the computer control room would send back to the people on the shop floor and give them a limited window to address the problem. So still preserving the autonomy of the shop floor. And if the factory couldn't rectify the problem, uh, a signal would be sent to higher government management who would then intervene from above to try to correct the problem. Um, so if you think back to my example of the biological system and swimming, right, day to day, the factory is like the lungs. They're operating on their own. It's only in a case of emergency or crisis where you need intervention from above um, that the government would actually uh, um, bring its its expertise uh, to make sure that the economy as a whole would survive and flourish. Um, and I can say more about that. I can go into greater detail. Um, but in a nutshell, that's how they saw the system working. Right. That's that's great. And and back to this notion of homeostasis. Uh, you mentioned these variables, and so that that there's these decisions made, and that ideally they're also coming from the bottom up. Correct about which what are the what are the variables and what are the what are the um limits in which these variables must be kept in that in that you know analogous to to the to the human of you know blood pressure um you know etc um you know all, all that all that's homeostatic features mm -hmm. right and so there are certain things that are interesting about the way that beer conceptualized the data within the system um the first thing that i think is interesting is that um, when we think of these kinds of systems, especially in the context of big data today, we think that, that the factories must have been sending minutiae, right? <laughs> that they must have been sending tons of data to the, to the central control room. Um, but really, they were sending around 10 to 12 selected indices of information, um, which is which required some creative engineering from the outset because engineers would need to go into the factories, study production, and determine which 10 to 12 indices of data were the most important. So a lot of them thinking about how the system worked and which indices were relevant went on the front end instead of the back end of the analysis, right, which is something that's different from today. Um, 
so I think that that's, that's an interesting point about how the data management worked. Um, the other thing is that as the system progressed, Beer started to see the factory modeling as a potential space for worker participation. So he envisioned that rather than having the university-educated engineers going into the factories to do the models, that it should be the workers themselves, that the workers themselves are the ones who have the intimate knowledge of the factory floor, and they should be the ones who are picking the most important indices of data and determining what values are acceptable. Um, and so in an ideal world, Beer thought that the workers themselves would be participating uh, in creating the software models that would contribute to the managing of their of their factories, uh, which I see as very, I don't know, ahead of his time in terms of thinking about participatory design. Absolutely. And it's it's at the core of this dialectic, in a sense, that's at the center of this model is that that it, there is a centralized control room and people see the centralized control room that if you've never seen the photos, it looks like the bridge of the enterprise and and people get all freaked out. And, and this and we'll talk about that. This next question I sort of want to get to is that on the surface, it, there's this fear of this very technocratic approach. But in fact, beer is trying to get those even those those very politically charged decisions about the indices, which indices do we pay attention to, is is a completely um, politically freighted question to come up from the shop floor. And so that is that balance between centralized um, stability and the, and this kind of autonomy at, out in the various components. Yes. Yes and no. Um, so I think that that's the narrative. That, that, that is Beer's narrative, right? Beer's narrative sees the system as a way of implementing Chilean politics, as a way of um, helping the economy, right? By, by bringing cybernetic management to improve action um, and as a vehicle for augmenting worker participation. But one of the things that I show in the book is that uh, the Chileans are saying something very different. Um, so ironically, Beer is the person who's like pushing for making the system more political. And many of the Chileans who are involved are saying, actually, that doesn't help us so much. Um, when we go into a factory, if we make the system more technical, um, people are more willing to work with us. People on the shop floor, including the engineers who are working in factories, come from many different political parties, right? Not everybody is a, a popular unity supporter. Um, even within the left, things are not homogenous, right? You have to think about union representation, right? And that communists have different views on, on, on the, the nationalized industries than socialists, you know, their views are different. So there's a lot of um, diversity in terms of how people understand the politics and understand how this nationalization process should take place. And that for the people who are on the ground doing the work um, from the Chilean side, a lot of times, you know, putting those political dimensions to the side can be viewed as something that's helpful or can also represent the legacy of class prejudice. So some of the engineers that I interviewed said, yeah, we knew we were supposed to talk to the workers, but, you know, we're the university educated engineers and we were a little arrogant. Um, and so we didn't. Right. So there's the, there's the reality of of uh, of class prejudice. Right. Versus the ideal. Um, so in, in summary, yes and no. Yeah. Beer is striving for that. But the reality on the ground is something is something different. Um what what are some of the other challenges that 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 they encountered and the, the the material you've mentioned about this particular thing is fascinating that it in fact becomes easier 
to get people to go along with this system if you emphasize it as a technocratic one rather than uh, than a political one. And what were some of the other challenges that were going on? Because it seems like the modeling process itself was became really, really difficult. Oof. I mean, there were so many challenges associated with this. Um, in addition to um, actually collecting the data for the models, you had to, to write the software. Um, and in order to write the software at uh, a lower price point, right? Because the Chileans were also concerned about the amount of money that they were spending. Um, they ended up entering into an agreement with Arthur Anderson Consultants in Britain, whereby Arthur Anderson would write a first pass temporary version of the software. And then the Chileans would come along and they would write the permanent version of the software. So there were these parallel efforts that were going on in terms of writing the software code. Um, creating the operations room had its own uh, challenges. Um, as part of the invisible blockade, it was difficult for Chile to import spare parts uh, and components that they might have needed uh, to build things such as a cybernetic operations room, uh, among other things. Um, and so that required some creative design thinking. Um, one area where they got very lucky was the telex network, um, because they would have had difficulty importing telex machines, but as luck would have it, they found a storage area with 400 unused telex machines, um, that was able to become the backbone of, of the telecommunications, um, network. And I think one of the more creative aspects, uh, in terms of engineering and a creative engineering solution, uh, to the limited resources that they had at the moment, Chile had about 50 computers in the entire country. Most of them were outdated. Chile did have a centralized state computer enterprise known as ECOM that had some of the most advanced computer equipment in the country, but ECOM only had four computers. So it's not like we can think of an internet kind of network today where every factory would have its own computer and we would network the computers. Um, in reality, they had to build a computer network using one computer. And they did this by connecting a network of telex machines back to this one centralized data processing area. Um, and I think that that was just a brilliant solution. Mm -hmm. And will become very, very critical as we turn to the October strike in a moment. And correct me if I'm wrong, but even that one mainframe they had it wasn't even full-time devoted to CyberSyn, right? There was a certain number of hours per day that the mainframe was theirs, yeah? Correct, absolutely, which created another challenge because the government, you know, at some point said, look, we really need the time that you're using for this project. We need it for other things. And so a Chilean programmer on the fly recoded the software to move it to a, a different mainframe that was main, made by a different manufacturer. Uh, so it definitely was a, a project in flux, um, where a lot of people were doing some creative work under challenging circumstances. Yeah. The idea of a telex and, and the, the geography, which you'd also talk about, of course, this long, thin country and wiring up through telex machines along the entire spine of that, of the country is, is extraordinary. Um, and ingenious and talk about, you know, just the willingness to, to, to get creative with under, under, under pressure. Um, so we let's let's talk about the October strike because this seems in a in a certain way to be the climax of the cyber sin story. Obviously, the end and the very tragic end, of course, is the is the bloody coup that brings Allende down and costs him and others their lives and ushers in the dark dark uh, period of the Pinochet dictatorship. But in terms of 
the sort of high point of Cybersyn, in a sense, the October strike seems to really be a defining moment and it gets a, a real uh, central place in your book. So can you tell us a little bit about the October strike and and how Cybersyn, the role Cybersyn played in maintaining the stability of the government in this incredibly challenging moment? Sure. And, you know, it's interesting to me, just reflecting back on the book, that really the October strike chapter is, it is a pivotal chapter, right? It's a pivotal chapter in, in the arc of the Cybersyn story. And I didn't even realize that until I was in the midst of writing the book. Um, and I just kept, you know, there was just more about the October strike and I just kept writing and writing. And eventually it just, it just split like an amoeba, right? And became its own, its own independent chapter, um, but I would agree with you that that is it is a, a turning point in my vision um, for the movie. In my vision for the movie, that's 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 the sort of third act. You know, that's the meat right there for sure. Yeah, for transitioning into the third act. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, that's also the way that historians of Chile look at it too. They look at it as a turning point in the arc of the popular unity government. Um, so, according to some historical interpretations, it's the October strike that brings about this pivot from the government being able to be on an offensive uh, with its policies to actually having to be on the defensive in struggling to stay in power. Um, so your, your third act sensibilities actually aligns with, uh, with historical interpretation of the popular unity period. Um, so the October strike in a nutshell, uh, in Spanish, it's called El Paro de Octubre. Um, before, the, before, as I mentioned, the government had been on the offensive, um, but opposition had been growing against the popular unity government. Um, in part, this was fueled by mounting consumer shortages. People had trouble getting access to, to key consumer goods. It was fueled by increased inflation, uh, fueled by concerns and fears about socialism or just outright dislike of the Allende government um, for a number of reasons opposition against the government is growing. And people within the opposition have different ideas about how best to address the fact that they want the Allende government to end. So members of the Christian Democrats who are in the center, they say, let's just wait till the elections in March, and maybe we can get the two-thirds majority we need to impeach Allende, right? So we can remove him from power, but again, do so within legal means. And there are those who are further to the right who say, no, we need to create the conditions so that he'll be overthrown. We need to create the conditions for a coup. And so planning starts to happen uh, with this latter goal in mind. And people are just waiting for the moment. They're waiting for the moment um, where they can uh, make these conditions uh, into, into a reality that might destabilize uh, the popular unity government and lead to its end. And this happens in October of 1972. And the spark uh, that starts the strike is the government decides to create uh, a trucking industry in a small Chilean town in the south known as Aysen that would be in parallel with the private trucking industry. And so the private trucking industry goes on strike because they say the government is against the private sector. They're trying to end the private sector. And that strike just grows. So it grows to 12,000 striking truck drivers, and then it grows to 40,000 striking truck drivers. And then other small business associations start to go on strike in sympathy. Um, so doctors, lawyers, engineers, right, they're also going on strike. Um, people are closing up their businesses and telling workers they can't come. 
Um, and the idea being that the truck drivers are going to block the streets. They're going to prevent the distribution and production of key goods. And things will get so bad that it will lead to uh, the destabilization and end of the popular unity government. Um, and just the speed with which the strike comes together illustrates the amount of organization that had been in place uh, prior to these events. Now, what brings the strike, according to you know, uh, more common interpretations of the popular unity period, is what brings the strike to an end are the creative efforts of people who are on the ground. So people in the industrial belts who are figuring out ways to maintain production. They're figuring ways to maintain distribution, right? They're finding creative workarounds. And then eventually in the beginning of November, Allende decides to incorporate the military into his cabinet. The right doesn't want to get you know, into a kerfuffle with the military and the strike ends, right? So that's the more popular narrative. Um, but looking at the history of Project Cybersyn, we see that Project Cybersyn also played an important role in the government being able to survive the strike. And part of the argument that I make is that, yes, you know, people on the ground being creative. Yes, it's the military and the cabinet. But it's also the fact that there is this communications infrastructure that is in place that allows the government to adapt to this crisis, right, in cybernetic terms and survive. So in essence, what happens, uh, Fernando Flores and a person who is working on the economic simulator, uh, Mario Grandi, they're talking to each other when the strike uh, starts and they say, hey, I think we can use what we learned from Project CyberSyn to contribute to the management of the strike. And they develop a network of telephone numbers to put key people in the government in communication with each other. And they also start to build off of the telex network that has been assembled for Project Cybersyn and think about using that telex network in ways to put the activities that are taking place on the ground in the factories, right, to put those people who are in charge of those efforts in communication with the people who are in the government, right? Um, so to connect that horizontal form of, of activity with the vertical kind of activity um, and do so in a way that can circumvent the bureaucracy so that decisions can be made quickly. Um, the telex network allows decisions to be made quickly. It allows the government to know where a truck is available that might be used, right, to distribute goods to another area, where a road might be open, where goods could be, you know, perhaps delivered. Um, and it also, because this is, you know, on paper, it allows a record to be created of what the government has already tried. So if someone says, oh, that truck never arrived, well, why not? We have a record here that we sent it, and then they could go back and figure out what happened. And so collectively, being able to communicate and being able to coordinate those activities also contributed to the Allende government being able to survive. And part of the argument that I make is cybernetic thinking, right? Even, uh, even though it's not the sole cause of the government's survival or even the primary cause of the government's survival, it did contribute to the government's survival and can be viewed as perhaps uh, one of the more important moments in the history of cybernetics as viewed from the perspective of its impact on a historical event. Yes, it, it really comes out across in the book as, as in a sense, Cybersyn's uh, crowning moment. Uh, and there's all kinds of irony, of course, around that in that it's dealing with this labor uprising and maintaining stability. But you see this, this rapid um, adaptive control and the fact that the, the, the 
the popular movements that are just happening at the grassroots become integrated into central control of the government. And, and, and so the, all the models of what, of what perhaps beer was after has sort of come, come to the fore and, and it, it proves it's sort of metal, uh, even though it never got to be completed and fulfill its, or at least even get a chance to fulfill its ultimate promise, its basic concepts sort of proved their metal in the in the October strike um, in the in the account you're giving us. It did, but the but the irony is that you know for for those who were watching this unfurl on the ground, the Telex network became a tool, right? It became a technology. It wasn't seen as part of a larger project known as CyberSyn. And it wasn't appreciated as a product of cybernetic thinking, right? It was just, you know, this is a great network. This was useful. You know, so there also is, a, is an irony there as well from a cybernetic perspective. And, it, and of course, it, uh, this now seems natural to us, this ability to know, you know, where are the trucks and when were they sent and that kind of networking. But in 1972, 73, with only one mainframe and a bunch of telex machines at your disposal, it's not as obvious. to, And it shows you just how... Uh, how far ahead Beer's thinking was. And in a way, you actually characterize him as one of the first people to think about computers for communication and not simply computation. That even that, even that was a pretty new idea at the time and that Beer's one of the few who's, who's thinking that way. Absolutely. I mean, at the time, we're talking mainframe computers, um, which were these large, very expensive machines that were viewed in many ways as just giant calculators, right? They were to do data processing, um, we didn't think of computers at that time as a means of communication in the way that we do today. One of the many cyberneticians that in their own way um, could see the Internet coming, in a sense. Um, in a sense, yeah. Yeah. So now we get to the more, you know, darker parts of the story. Can you tell us a bit about the end of CyberSyn and, of course, the end of the IND government by extension? Sure. Uh, so uh, the government survived uh, the October strike of 1972, um, but it did not survive the military coup that took place on September 11th, 1973. Um, this was a coup that was started by the military, uh, and it resulted in Allende's death, and it ushered in 17 years of dictatorship under Augusto Pinochet. Uh when the military came to power, Project Cybersyn was destroyed. Uh, there are differing accounts of the military uh, destroying parts of the operations room. So one of the stories I heard is that they found some of the slides that were used in the operations room um, and started to destroy the slides. Um, I have heard anecdotally that the military was interested in potentially continuing work on Project Cybersyn and interviewed members of the CyberSyn team to find out what it was all about. And as one person told me, they, you know, the military asked, oh, we hear this is a system for control. Tell us about it. And the person, you know, having come up through Stafford Beer's teachings about control, responded, you know, well, what kind of control are you talking about? And this, of course, promptly baffled the military. <laughs> and, you know, the work, it, it stopped there. Um, so work on the project did not continue in an explicit way after the military coup. Um, I have my own personal theories. Uh, the Pinochet government, in, in collaboration with a number of other Latin American governments, created a data sharing network as part of Operation Condor. Operation Condor was a transnational network of terror 
that tried to track those, uh, these governments deemed to be politically subversive as they moved from country to country. And phase one of this project consisted of a computerized database connected by a network of telex machines. Um, can I prove that there's a connection between one and the other? You know, I haven't been able to. Maybe a future historian will be able to make that connection. Um, but it at least shows that these ideas and configurations are in the air um, and can be used to, to different ends. Um, so that was the end of Chilean socialism under Pinochet. Uh, it's estimated that around 3,200 people uh, were disappeared or executed and by some estimates, uh, approximately 1% of the population was, was tortured. Um, so a very, a very different ending to the, the utopian dream of Chilean socialism. And were there members of the Cybersyn team that found their lives in danger? I know many of them left the country and, and Beer did a lot to help his closest collaborators um, get academic positions in the UK and elsewhere. So were there, how, how frightening was it for the members of the inner circle itself? Yeah, so for the members of the inner circle, um, a number of them were interrogated, others were arrested, some were able to, to leave um, and find positions uh, rather quickly in, in Canada and the UK. Um, others, it took many years, most notably Fernando Flores. Uh, he was sent originally to a prison camp uh, in southern Chile. And it wasn't until 1976 that he was able to get out with the assistance of Stafford Beer and Amnesty International um, and go to Silicon Valley in California. And so he has a whole, a whole trajectory out there that, that I can say more if there's, if there's interest. Um, but absolutely, I mean, the people who were involved in this, uh, they felt the impact of the, of the Pinochet dictatorship. And there's a really fascinating sort of uh, cybersyn diaspora out in the international um, cybernetics community, people like Raul Espejo and others who have gone on to teach the viable system model in places like Britain, where it's really had a, actually quite a bit of uptake. And the VSM is certainly still alive and well in um, management and operations uh, research circles through people like Espejo and, and others. So, which brings me to the question of legacy. So, um, from any number of angles that you look at it, uh, from uh, the technology in Latin America, um, politics, management, etc., what are some of the elements that you would say are the legacy of, of CyberSyn, looking back on it from, from here? So I think the first place uh, we need to start in answering that question uh, is to think about the legacy of Project CyberSyn as the people. Uh, I decided to call the book Cybernetic Revolutionaries instead of having an emphasis on the technology because I because the people are what come out of this endeavor. Um, I've interviewed a number of people who had been involved in the project in different ways. Uh, a common theme is that this project was a changing point in their life. Many of them went on to do... Um, very exceptional things in different areas of government, of science, um, computation, right? Um, and they said that they couldn't have gotten to where they were had they not participated in, in Project CyberSyn. So part of the argument has to be that this high-risk project, even though it never came to fruition in the way its designers imagined, it still has a legacy, right? And it has a legacy that, that is worthwhile. 
Um, in terms of specifics, the Chile project transformed Stafford Beer. Um, Stafford Beer went to Chile as Humberto Maturana, so another big figure in, in, in cybernetics. Um, as he described it, Beer arrived in Chile as a businessman and he left as a hippie. So he went through this personal transformation in Chile, and you can see this in the documents, um, where when he begins the work, he's a very uh, highly paid business consultant, right, who's used to wearing a suit. Um, he drives a Rolls Royce. He has a, you know, a very comfortable living. Uh, and as work on Chile progresses, he starts to question his material wealth. He starts to question what his values are. After the coup, um, he decides to renounce many of his material possessions. He moves to Wales to a cottage that, that lacks running water. Um, and he has a more social component in his work. So one of his later works, actually his last book, was designing a new model for conflict re resolution um, that he believed could help the conflict in the Middle East uh, between Israel and Palestine. Um, so Stafford Beer was absolutely transformed by his experience in Chile. Um, the other major figure who was transformed uh, was Fernando Flores. So when Fernando Flores leaves Chile in 1976, uh, he goes to the Silicon Valley area. Uh, he falls in uh, first at Stanford and then at Berkeley. He co-authors a book uh, that is now a canonical text in human-computer interaction, uh, a book called Understanding Computers and Cognition. He becomes a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. He becomes a business consultant. He becomes a multimillionaire. Uh, he publishes a second book uh, called Disclosing New Worlds that looks at the kinds of people who are history makers. And in one of the case studies, he, it's based on him. It tells the story of someone who goes from being a, a minister in a socialist government to becoming a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. And it's that latter work that is framed as being a history maker, right? Not the previous work of being a minister in a socialist revolution. So that in and of itself is just fascinating, right? And it shows you know, how Flores is remaking himself in the image of neoliberalism. Um, and indeed, by, you know, the, the 2000s, uh, he returns to Chile as a very wealthy businessman and he becomes a senator uh, for northern Chile. So he has, you know, a, a tremendous uh, uh, change in his tra trajectory. And one of the arguments that I make is that actually you can view Beer and Flores as switching sides, right? With, yes, yes. <laughs> right. With, with, you know, Flores becoming more of the international business consultant and Beer becoming more of the, the revolutionary. Fascinating. Thank you. Well, this has been tremendous. Uh, it's uh, I'm such a huge fan of this book. We've really scratched the surface in terms of the tremendous research you've done and all of the fascinating details, technological, um, scientific, sociological, political, etc. Uh, in, in this book. It was a tale that needed telling and you've, and you've done a beautiful job. So my last question for you, which is a traditional one, um, what are you working on now? Yeah. So I'm in the middle of a new book project. Uh, so I'm happy to say a few words about that. Um, I'm still looking at science and technology in Chile, uh, but I'm looking at a period that comes after the popular unity. Uh, so in particular, I'm looking at uh, the scientific techniques and technologies that are used in the forensic identification of remains of the disappeared. So those who were disappeared and executed um, during the Pinochet dictatorship. 
Um, and I'm looking at it in, in particular uh, through the frame of a particular burial site known as Patio 29, which was the largest site for the anonymous burial of remains uh, by the Chilean military during the Pinochet dictatorship. When Chile returned to democracy, over 100 sets of remains were exhumed from the site. Close to 100 sets of remains were identified and returned to their families. And several years later, it came to light that at least half of those remains were misidentified. And so I am looking at the story of what happens, you know, not only a story of the construction of truth and the role of law, science, technology, and history, right, in the construction of historical facts under conditions of extreme uncertainty, but also what happens when everything comes apart, right? When truths that you think are settled, what happens when they come apart? And what does that mean for processes of truth, justice, and reconciliation? So that is the that is the book that I am in the process of writing. Well, that's that sounds tremendous, and uh, we will all look forward to that. And and uh, I have high hopes that you will end up on one of the various channels on this network uh, speaking about that book in the future. Thank you so much, Eden, for joining us and uh, for your fantastic book. And uh, we look forward to catching up with you again sometime not too long from now. Thank you. This was a pleasure. Okay. Thank you. 